Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Welcome back to another week of Science and Podcasts presented by Science and Pictures Magazine. As per usual, we are both here. Who are we, you ask? Glad you asked that. Who are we, Jared? Well, I'm Jared. That's and Jared. And I think you're Madison. That's correct. We are Madison Dix is me, and Jared Adelman is he, and <laughs> we are here to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what kind of science are we taking the headache out of today, Jared? Oh, God. Um, this is one of the coolest things I've ever read. Um, but in... I trying to stall to find my notes and open them. Oh, that's okay. Well, while Jared is collecting his notes, I'd just like to issue a big old thank you so much to anyone who is listening right now. We are just starting out. Uh, we like to say we're just a baby podcast, we're just a tiny little plant growing new leaves, and each one of you is a super key nutrient in the development of our mycorrhizal network. Um, by that, I mean uh, every single download, every single subscribe, every single, hey, uh, hey, friend, I listened to this podcast, and I think you might like it, really counts. So thank you so much for listening and sharing. Please continue to do that. If you want to engage with us further we actually do have a social media presence of sorts um we have an instagram it's science underscore in underscore podcast uh we're also science in podcast on facebook and we have an email so if you have any feedback for us positive negative or otherwise you can shoot that on over to podcast at scienceinpictures.com and also check out our host scienceandpictures.com. Pretty cool stuff going on there, translating science into comics. Yeah, and uh, also check us out uh, no matter what country you exist in on the planet, uh, because... Yeah! Before we started recording, uh, Jared was just looking at our, our little stats on Captivate to see um, how many listeners, or how many countries we have listeners from right now, and... It, can you read it, Jared? I'm really proud. I think we can humble brag a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> so uh, we have the United States, India, Germany, Russia, Bangladesh, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, Denmark, Kuwait, Nepal, Pakistan, and Thailand. Thank you all so much. Seriously, like, thank I you. Have, I have only been to two of those places. <laughs> this is a big world, and it means a lot that um, people from all over find something that they like in this podcast. Um we really do want to make sure that we're not being super like United States centric because, you know, it is it is a flaw in our perspective that Jared and I are both, you know, in the East Coast, in the United States. So especially if you're listening from another country, please like pop in and talk to us. We'd love to hear, you know, what you want to hear about more, um, what we're doing well, what we're doing not. Anyway, thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much. So happy to have you here. We're a little starstruck, honestly. You Y'all are so cool. Yeah, this has been uh, quite an experience. Uh, so I found my notes. Uh, thank you for letting me stall. Uh, the paper... notes. Now we get to find out what the topic is today. The paper I found for us this week is, at its heart, a pathological investigation reaching back thousands of years in time. Um, it also concerns uh, pretty crucial evolutionary trade-offs and a very risky gamble that human evolution took minimum twice uh, to push back against a near-unstoppable parasite. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's big. Uh-huh. Okay, we got human evolution. We've got pathology, which is like illness and parasites and creepy crawlies that make you sick, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's what I've got from that. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I would have wanted you to get. Um, wow. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, so this paper was published last month in uh, Nature Scientific Reports and is titled Forager and Farmer Evolutionary Adaptations to Malaria, Evidenced by 7,000 Years of Thalassemia in Southeast Asia. This uh, paper was lead authored by graduate student Melandry Deluc, um, a paleopathologist, that's a pathologist who looks at ancient diseases, and a bioarchaeologist, uh, who is an archaeologist that uses the molecules of living things, um, uh, and she does all this at New Zealand's University of Otago. Um, the other contributing authors are scientists Hallie R. Buckley, uh, Justina J. Miskiewicz, Meg M. Walker, Kate Demet, Anna Willis, uh, Heap H. Trin, Tran T. Min, Mai Hong T. Nguyen, Lan Kuang Nguyen, Hirofumi Matsumura, Tianyi Wang, Huti Nia, and Mark F. Oxenham. A lot of authors. Wow. Wow. Big topic. Lots of researchers. This is going to be a juicy one. Yes, indeed. Uh, but... Malaria? Yes. 
All right. That's that's icky. Very icky. Uh, fascinating, fascinatingly icky, uh, as I, I, I hope you'll see. But before that, let's rattle off a few fun facts. I feel like we might have just found our title for the episode. <laughs> fascinatingly icky. <laughs> we'll see if it sticks. I don't really know what we're going to talk about yet, fully. <laughs> Very good. But it has a ring to it. All right, yeah, let's let's jog on over to the fun facts corner. All right, uh, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So my fun fact this week um, is something I literally just found out. Um, and that is that bacteria that have been killed by heat um, can still transfer their characteristics to living bacteria. By way of horizontal gene transfer? Yep, genes can move between bacterial cells. I had no idea. That... I only know this because I read a paper that horrified me about uh, this thing happening with superbug genes inside sewage treatment plants. Um, but yeah, Ew. horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it really it really throws a whole wrench in that nature versus nurture argument if like nature can just like pop on over to another. <laughs> it's also something that gave evolutionary biologists quite a headache for quite a few decades because um, the standard thought of evolution which sort of only happens in one direction, but uh, guess what? It also happens sideways. Yeah, and like, this doesn't just happen in bacteria, apparently. Like, similar genes have been identified um, in distantly related species of organisms, including vertebrates, which means genes can move from species to species. Oh, yeah. Um, so a lot of different lineages of mammal have a part of their genome uh, full of these genes called syncotins. Um, and those syncotins are ancient viruses that sort of found their way inside our DNA and actually ended up doing a good job. So is that what a retrovirus is? Yes, uh, syncotins are ancient retroviruses that allow mammals to form a placenta. Wow, craziness. Mm -hmm. So much learning today. All right, what's oh, your fun yes. fact? <laughs> My fun fact uh, concerns a little trip I'll be taking in a few days uh, to see the old 17-year uh, Brood X periodical cicadas. Yes, the screamers. They're coming yes. out of the ground. Indeed. Now, I'm not going to an area where this is going to be happening. Uh, part of me is happy about that. But, um, of course, my fun fact concerns a parasite, a parasitic fungus called uh, Massospora cicadina. And what it does is, uh, it's so, it's so, so... Is this the one I sent a picture to you of on Instagram? I don't think so. The one that literally makes, like, that weird big mushroom thing around the mouth and, like... That looked like a beetle grub, in my opinion. Ah, but so this is a fungus that gets inside their body. Um, it uses a cocktail of chemicals like a bunch of parasitic fungi do, um, which includes psilocybin. It uses a lot of psilocybin, which is the psychedelic component to magic mushrooms. And yep. that's part of how it uh, makes these cicadas do its bidding. We don't understand how or why it does, but you know, that's a thing. Um, basically it melts their butt off and turns them into flying spore factories. So wait, you're telling me like these bugs that already are super weird in that they like stay underground for like 13 to 17 years, depending, and then come out just to like scream at the top of their lungs, shed their skin and mate. They're also doing acid and setting their butts on fire. The ones in the Midwest specifically. That checks out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I like that batch of fun facts. Yeah, me too. That was interesting. Wow. All right. All right, let's move on to the fascinating ickiness or whatever it is. <laughs> so this is a beefy topic. Um, so before we jump in, uh, a jargon corner is pretty necessary. So let's brush up on a few key terms. Let's do it. Yeah, first up is hemoglobin. Hemoglobin. It's in the blood. It is. It does important things. It does. Don't remember what. So hemoglobin is the uh, protein in our body that is used to shuttle oxygen throughout. It grapples onto the oxygen and lets go of it where it, it needs to go. Aha. So that's how the oxygen gets from like breathing in to like doing all the stuff it needs to do in our body. Thanks, hemoglobin. Exactly. But that to me does raise a question, which is why does that even need to happen? Why don't we just breathe in the oxygen and it just goes where it needs to go? Any ideas? I mean, why anything? <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like if we could have gone a simpler way, why wouldn't we, instead of having a super complicated molecule like hemoglobin? Oh, I, I actually have an answer to that for you. Okay. Because evolution is a C-plus system. <laughs> you not have to ace it to pass it on. You, you just have to survive. I like that. It's um, like this reason cephalopods' brains are like a donut around their esophagus. 
doesn't make any sense, but it, it wasn't problematic enough that it killed them all, so it, it, it continued. I am really glad you mentioned cephalopods, because cephalopods actually have a variant. You no, know, it's not a variant. It's a completely different molecule called hemocyanin, which is why their blood is blue. But that's I was going to say, cyanin, like cyan, like blue. That makes uh-huh. sense to me linguistically. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that's what they use to transfer oxygen. But we do need it, because oxygen, as it exists in the air, is a very dangerous molecule uh, once it gets inside our body. Um, so. Yeah, so oxygen is generally most present as an oxygen bonded to another atom, uh, O2. That yeah. is a negatively charged um, molecule and also very reactive. So if that is just sort of traveling around in our body, it can do a fair amount of damage. And also, if those atoms happen to split apart, you have oxygen ions, which are just, they're called free radicals because oh. they do just massive amounts of damage. They shred through tissue. And so if we didn't have the hemoglobin safely transferring the oxygen, it would wreak havoc. I had no idea. I didn't either. It's really cool, I right? I thought the only dangerous form of oxygen was O3, but here we are. Oh, ozone is bad too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oxygen. But yeah, so hemoglobin and hemocyanin, now that we talked about it, uh, basically they latch onto that oxygen before it can cause any of that damage, and they release it in places where it can be safely burnt. Very important. Thank you, hemoglobin. Love you. Never leave me. <laughs> Very good. Uh, our second term is pathognomonic. Ever heard of this one? Hmm. Pathognomonic. Mm-hmm. So a mnemonic device is something you use to remember something based on what it sounds like. And pathos has to do with illness or disease. So yeah, I have no clue. So you're actually on the right track. Um, a, a pathognomonic is, it's a description of a symptom, but it's a symptom that is only associated with a single ailment or disease. Um, and only that one. So for instance, if you um, have a really painful bowel movement and you look inside of what you've done and it has the consistency of rice water, you definitely have cholera and should get yourself treatment immediately. Rice water? It, yep, it's called rice water stool. Rice wa- I've never seen rice water. How do I know if I have cholera? <laughs> if it looks anything like rice water, you'll probably know. Okay. I'll, I'll keep an eye out. <laughs> also, you don't live in Victorian London next to the River Thames, so you'll probably be fine. You don't know where I am. Oh, actually, I shouldn't say that. Cholera affects a lot of people today, but yes. Um, so pathognomonic symptoms that present themselves in bones, um, which is good for uh, paleontological stuffs, are especially useful in figuring out what diseases were plaguing ancient animals, humans included. Okay. Okay, yeah, because if it only is attached to one specific thing, then that's a great indicator. Exactly. Uh, last up, for now, is a little intertwined cluster of jargon, uh, starting with hereditary anemia. Oh, hereditary means you get it from, um, your most recent ancestor, like mm-hmm. mom and dad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Parent, that's what they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, your most recent ancestor. <laughs> <laughs> Have you called your most recent ancestor today? Um, <laughs> Okay, so hereditary. What's the other part of the word? Anemia. Oh, anemia. I get that sometimes. Anemia is when, well, there's something wrong with the blood. You don't have enough iron, and then you pass out when you stand up. Um, That can happen in in anemia. Fatigue is arguably the most common symptom of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, Anemia actually is. It's something to do with iron, and that's really all I know about it. But this is... It does have something to to do with iron because anemia specifically is a disorder of the hemoglobin. Oh no, what's wrong with my hemoglobin? Well, in your case, since it doesn't affect you all the time, I would guess it might be a dietary thing. I'm vegetarian vegan, so yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta take those supplements, my guy. Um, I do, my gentle iron. That's why I know it's related to iron, because that's how we fixed it. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so because anemias are affecting the hemoglobin, effectively, they affect red blood cells. Um, Yeah, which as, I can't remember if this was a past episode, but this comes to play later. Red blood cells aren't actually cells. They're bags of protein that are made up of about 95% hemoglobin inside. We did talk about this, the little lifesavers. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay, wait. So are you going to tell me like how anemia is related to iron? We're not going to talk specifically about that. Okay, but iron is the it's 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 basically the essential metal that makes hemoglobin do what it does. 
So is anemia like something's wrong with the hemoglobin and then it's not doing as such a good of a job as like getting the oxygen going around? Yes, that's exactly what happens. All right, cool. Makes sense. Cool. Um, so um, as we'll see, though, uh, not everyone. So we're going back to this is straight her, her hereditary anemia and not not like a dietary. Not dietary. Different. Um, yeah. Exactly. Um, so anemia Hereditary anemia can be associated with serious symptoms, but a lot of the time, in a lot of a specific set of instances, it's not. Um, not everyone who inherits a form of anemia will show clinical symptoms of it. Whether or not that happens mainly depends on the genetic dice roll that happens when one or two unknowing carriers reproduce. Okay, fun, fun. Mm -hmm. I love when two unknowing carriers reproduce. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, Madison, what do I mean when I say that in some very specific cases, hereditary anemia can be adaptive? Adaptive. So adaptive is the key term there. Yeah. So adaptive means that it's caused in response to something in the environment, and that adaptation helps the organism, in this case, human, survive. Exactly. So that would mean in some cases, anemia is actually beneficial and so it evolved as an adaptation to something in the environment. Yep. What? <laughs> what? So, so there is some very, very strong evidence to, to say this, some very detailed mapping and epidemiological data. But for a number of lucky individuals, hereditary anemia can actually protect against malaria, where the most lethal form of malaria is most common. Oh my goodness. That's where the malaria shows up. Wow. So, so anemia helps protect against Malaria. Can protect. Can protect. Okay. And then you said in the area where malaria is most common. Yes. Um, mosquitoes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Malaria is spread by mosquitoes of the genus Anopheles. Um, and we'll go into, actually, we'll go into right now where it's the most common. But Wait, those mosquitoes, they're from Africa, aren't they? Uh, they're also in Southeast Asia and a lot of other places. Oh, my bad. Sorry, Africa. <laughs> no worries, mosquitoes are everywhere. Mosquitoes. <laughs> uh, ooh, that could have been my fun fact. There's about 300 species of mosquito that have been found in the Amazon alone. Um, oh. Yeah. Ooh. Yep. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the best known, at least in the U.S., the best known form of hereditary anemia, which is known as sickle cell anemia. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Harkening back to high school textbooks that were probably inaccurate. Yes. Um. I did learn about this in school in a very racist way, but... Um, yes, so did I. Okay, I'm, I'm excited to hear the perspective from these authors. <laughs> yeah, um, I also don't mean to take away, like, the humanity of any, any at all people that might actually suffer from a her hereditary anemia. I just think this is a fascinating story to tell. All right, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, um, so like we touched on earlier, not everyone who inherits an anemia will actually suffer severe consequences from it. For example, um, in the case of sickle cell anemia, um, if two asymptomatic carriers have a baby, which means they have the genes, but they don't have any outward symptoms, um, there is about a 50% chance that baby will also be a carrier, a 25% chance they won't inherit anything, and unfortunately, a 25% chance they will inherit an awful lethal variant known as sickle cell disease. Oh, that's so hard. You know, I was just talking, so my sister-in-law is currently pregnant and, um, there is so much information that doctors tell you when you're pregnant about all of the ways that things could go wrong. And this just, just reminds me of that. I don't know. <laughs> well, I can, no, I can definitely imagine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this is actually something that I only learned as a consequence of this, but sickle cell disease is actually also caused by malformed hemoglobin. It's the variant of that hemoglobin that causes the cell to become rigid and sickle-like. Okay. Don't know why that happens, but that's... Well, I know that with sickle cell anemia, the little lifesaver shape of the red blood, not a cell, turns into like a half moon shape, right? Exactly. Um, that's right. Okay, good. You're right. It just, it depends on the, the percentage of your hemoglobin that's actually like that is going to, de is going to basically determine your symptoms and how bad your anemia is. Heard. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. Um, so... Obviously, there is a very, very enormous risk involved with in inheriting this trait. Um, however, it's really telling that about 85% of every child on Earth born with, with this disorder are all located in sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, wow. 85% of every ch child born on Earth, just like at any moment. Um, sub-Saharan Africa also just happens... Wait. Wait a minute. Are you saying 85% of children born with sickle cell anemia are born in sub-Saharan Africa or 85% yes. of children are born in sub-Saharan Africa? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Just yes. making sure. 
Oh no, thank you for checking me out. <laughs> um, Sub-Saharan Africa also happens to be where the vast majority of Anopheles mosquitoes are. Not every species of Anopheles actually spreads malaria, but quite a few of them do. Um, but basically, uh, yeah, they line up really, really well. Um, where the, okay, uh, sh sh should I bring this up yet? There's, there's a lot of forms of malaria caused by different kinds of parasites. Um, they, malaria can cause between a six and 50% mortality rate, depending on the sufferer's age and factors. That is um, terrible. Exactly. COVID-19 has a less than 1% mortality rate. Malaria is no joke. I should say that Ooh. mortality rate is, is with, with no treatment. Um, malaria in most cases is treatable. Um, yeah, that's good. That's yeah, good. we have been, you know, the superbug crisis actually does affect malaria as well, but, but we're not access gonna... to healthcare is really inequitable across the globe. We're going to talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Big time. We're going to talk about that later. We need to support our friends in sub-Saharan Africa. We really do. Um, doctors down there. Especially because this is even more damning. Um, basically, have you ever heard of in epidemiology the concept of R naught or R sub zero? um that's oh i remember learning about this um when the pandemic just started that's like how many it's like the the spreadability of it right yes so if r if r naught is um above i think if it's above zero the disease will spread um the concept of r naught was figured out through mapping malaria wow okay mm -hmm. and they know that because uh the places in where the populations of humans have the highest cases of sickle cell anemia are also very, very often where malaria hits the strongest and the hardest. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, it, I mean, that correlation checks out based on the information you gave me about how sickle cell anemia can potentially help protect you from malaria. Exactly. And uh, even more telling, well, adaptation. Yeah. Oh, wow. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and you know, it's even just final nail in the coffin, the lowest parasite burdens, which are the amount of parasite a person has in their body, largely occur in carriers of sickle cell anemia. So carriers of it that don't really show clinical symptoms. Mosquito just flew into my nose. <laughs> 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 Heard we were talking <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. Sorry, can you repeat the last thing you said when a bug flew into my nose? <laughs> <laughs> um... Basically, the people with the lowest parasite burden, the lowest parasite loads, are also generally the people that carry a sickle cell anemia without showing symptoms for it. So it does work. It does work. Um, okay. These findings strongly, strongly tell us that sickle cell anemia, because of the risk involved, it had to have evolved um, in response to malaria because there's just this insane risk without any benefit besides protecting from malaria. Yeah, I mean, it checks out to me so far. I know correlation is not causation, but this is a strong correlation. Indeed. And it makes even more sense when you look at the parasite that causes malaria, which is our next key term. Uh, a little, Ooh, who dis? This is a little devious organism called plasmodium. Plasmodium. Mm-hmm. Okay. So plasmo plasmodium is a, it looks like a little single-celled bullet. Um, it's a single-celled oh. organism called a protist or, or a protozoan. Um, some protists are more plant-like, some protists are more animal-like. It's actually an outdated term because it doesn't really mean what it used to mean. And but... some are rock stars in the world of Xenon Girl of the 21st century. <laughs> well, oh, you made that reference before. I got that. I got it this time. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you can think of um, uh, uh, things like Plasmodium as sort of the, the more almost animal kind of them. So they're, they're single-celled. They're almost like an animal, if not for the fact that they are only made of one cell. Ah, okay, yes. But in the in the by the definition they have of little tails, don't they? What's up? They have little tails. Apicomplexans do not. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, maybe some do. I don't. I don't know them all. Um. So there is about two hundred known species of Plasmodium. Um. And they are all parasites. Basically, they're a type of protist called an apicomplexan. They have this thing at the top of their head or what would be their head, called the apical complex. It's basically a cannon full of molecules designed to force their way inside their host. Cannon head. Cannon head. Mm -hmm. They're shaped like a bullet. They have a cannon head. Sounds like they're kind of violent. They, yeah, yes. I wouldn't trust them if I saw them on Instagram. Nope, not at all. Uh, so every, every species of Plasmonium is a parasite. Um, most of them actually parasitize mammals along with birds um, and other reptiles. Four of them have specifically evolved to infect humans, but 
there's also been zoonotic infections of malaria, uh, actually based in Southeast Asia, where we're going to be moving to soon. Oh, there's some jargon, zoonotic. Oh, um, so point. you mean jumping from animals to humans. Exactly. Um, yeah. The four species that cause the most malaria have, scientists think about 6,000 years ago, um, they had completed their adaptation directly to humans. Is it, are all four of them mosquitoes? All four, so these are the parasites spread by mosquitoes. We're going to go over all of them. Oh, I thought you were talking about the four, the four ones that are spread, the four animals that are spreading it. That's what I thought you meant. Oh, no, I'm sorry. So, so. Okay, so the four plasmodus, plasmo, hello? Plasmodium. Thank you. The four plasmodium, or I guess, since we're plural, the four plasmodia? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, um, that infect humans. What about them? There's four. That's just what I meant to say. There's four. <laughs> All right. Um, and I will also say that the, test. I hope you're paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> I will also say that the uh, most lethal uh, species is Plasmodium falciparum, which causes falciparum malaria, uh, is as it's called. And scientists think that it's the most lethal because they also think that it's the species that most recently jumped to humans. Because usually oh. when a, a parasite's been around a species for a while, it tends to like level out and leap out. Well, yeah, because, you know, the species that's being impacted adapts to, like, get over it and survive because life finds a way. Exactly. Uh, life sure did find a way in Plasmodium. Yeah. <laughs> so a common view, a very common view of parasites is that they are really nothing but simple, quote unquote, devolved individuals. However. <laughs> that's um, rude. Yep. <laughs> so, Madison, if you thought Plasmodium was complicated uh, just now, um, we're gonna we're gonna open that can of worms. Bullet body, cannon face, can of worms. Not a friend. Mm -hmm. Yep. So uh, specifics are gonna vary depending on the species, but generally speaking, the life cycle as pl of Plasmodium in humans is as follows. Okay. You ready? Yes. Life okay. cycle. So first, a number of immature parasites are in the saliva of a mosquito. A mosquito bites a human. The immature parasites enter that human's bloodstream. All right, I'm with you so far. Mm -hmm. By the time they have already left that mosquito, the plasmodium cells have already gone through two metamorphoses. Oh my goodness, they're speedy with it. Mm -hmm. So what, what do they do then? Next, they travel through one's bloodstream until they reach the liver. The parasites enter a liver cell, go through two more metamorphoses, they start eating those cells, they multiply asexually, and burst out of those liver cells alien style. Oh, rude. In the liver? We need that. Mm -hmm. So next, uh, using a system... What's up? Jaundice is a symptom of malaria, isn't it? Jaundice is a common complication of, of both malaria and sickle cell anemia. Well, now that makes sense because it's happening in the liver. Exactly. All right, continue. <laughs> so they also have this really fancy system of hooks that they sort of protrude out their body. They're like little grappling Whoa. hooks. Yeah, so they, they, those? they have a cannon for a face. They sure oh, do. Wow. So <laughs> the cannon is how they enter the uh, cells that they go into. But so next, they're going to drag themselves along a nearby blood vessel until they encounter a red blood cell. No, not my hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. So they're inside the cell, which is actually, you know, like we talked about, just a stretchy bag of hemoglobin. And next, the parasite gets to work, basically turning that non-cell into a cell. Oh my gosh. So it takes it from a lifesaver and it's like, listen, we're going to make you life. No mm -hmm. more just life. <laughs> yep. So first it gets to work eating that hemoglobin, uh, almost all of it. And actually hemoglobin should be toxic to plasmodium, but it excretes it in its body as a non-lethal molecule, which actually causes damage to our body once that red blood cell ruptures, which is why part of why plasmodium does so much damage. Fun. Thanks, plasmodium. Didn't yep. invite you here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it also reaches little tendrils outside of the red blood cell uh, near the end of its feeding cycle to grab other proteins it also needs. So part of what makes a cell a Killing cell- Killing my proteins out of my blood? Exactly. I need that protein. I worked mm -hmm. hard for that. You did. You sure Sweet. did. Indeed. So this is so cool to me because part of what makes a cell a cell is mainly two things. One, it has a nucleus. And two, it has uh, it has a need to eat and release metabolic waste. Um, plasmodium basically turns non-cells into cells in part That's of its life cycle. That is fascinating. I feel like we kind of skated over it, but like that did blow my mind the moment you said it. Like it was already interesting enough that red blood cells aren't real cells, but then that 
this parasite that wreaks so much havoc in the body, like the first thing it does when it enters the the non-cell is it turns it into a cell to do its evil bidding. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And we're not even done. We're about halfway through. (laughs) So this is where we enter a problem because usually uh, in the kingdom- there's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) A problem for for the parasite, I should say. Um, Indeed. Um, So normally when a red blood a red blood cell, a red blood cell starts to show signs of wear and tear, it's going to be stopped uh, when it enters the spleen and it's going to be destroyed because the uh-huh, spleen uh-huh. doesn't like unhealthy red blood cells. I think we talked about that before. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, this would be a problem for plasmodium, uh, would be the keyword, had it not evolved two ingenious strategies. First, as the parasite feeds and multiplies, it also releases proteins that keep that red, bl- red blood cell, despite all its scaffolding, naturally springing and pliable. Basically, it, it, it protects the red blood cell from its own damage. It literally puts the red blood cell in, like, a costume. hmm Wow. Yep. So after a few hours, uh, that little trick doesn't work anymore because the red blood cell is just, it's too far gone. So when the damage can no longer be hidden, uh, the parasite avoids the spleen entirely by producing oh. sticky molecules that latch on uh, that red blood cell into a blood vessel. And there it stays. Oh, it stays, it eats, it multiplies... And it makes both sexual and asexual forms. The asexual ones attack more red blood cells. The uh, sexual ones prepare to move on out. So now we get back to that mosquito. The it's asexual like evil jellyfish. It's an evil jellyfish. Wow. I shouldn't say it's evil. It's like just doing its thing, but it's I devious. Don't it. <laughs> I don't appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what we're done though. Uh, because those asexual ones are going to keep on invading red blood cells and making those two separate forms of themselves. The sexual forms are going to uh, get taken up by a mosquito. They're going to mate inside that mosquito and start the life cycle anew. Wow. Oh, and then just to clear it up for anybody who's wondering, the difference between sexual and asexual reproduction, sexual is like two individuals combining their genes to like make a new life form and asexual is like copying your own genes without influence from another individual. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank but, you. You know, de-jargon that just in case. No, thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're almost done with plasmodium, but it's possible that humans have actually been dealing with malaria since our species first arose. The genetics, uh, the genetic data sort of conflicts on that. So either way, they've been around for a while. So one would think that our complex immune system, uh, our human immune system would have found a way to fight back against plasmodium by now such as making antibodies against the free-swimming parasite cells or the hooks that they use to drag themselves along at all times. Yes. Again, more problems. Um, the parasite, as it's traveling along as a free-swimming parasite, it puts different coats of fatty acids on, takes one off after a certain amount of time, and puts on a new one. She's got costume changes? She's got costume changes. She's like, oh, what's his name in a series of unfortunate events? Count Olaf. Uh-huh. This parasite oh. is Count Olaf. This parasite is Count Olaf. Um, oh, also, <laughs> yep, <laughs> that is evil. Also, those hooks, um, there are over a hundred different genes to make that single kind of hook, and all the different genes require different antibodies against them. So, um, yeah. It's like crowdsourcing. Yep. Oh my gosh. So if uh, anyone's wondering why there's no vaccines against malaria yet, um, it's going to take a lot more time. It's so much more complicated than COVID. It is. Um, part of that is part of that is because it's a, pro- it's a protist and not a virus, but uh, that's a good point. That's true. Yeah, viruses are like this weird. The thing that you said about parasites that they're like a devolved form mm-hmm. of life. Like that's a good description of a virus. They're like half alive. Yeah, or maybe just a form of life that never evolved that further complexity in the first place. But that's a question for another day. Yeah, maybe um, I should. Maybe I shouldn't. You know, poo-poo viruses. <laughs> they're powerful right now. They are. <laughs> So I will uh, end this Jargon Corner with uh, one of my favorite quotes. We're still uh, in the Jargon Corner? We're still in the Jargon Corner. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we're done, though. Um, so there's a, uh, I got a lot of the info uh, from this uh, episode from a book called Spillover by David Quammen. And he ends David his- Quammen, good man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. He ends his uh, talking about malaria by uh, saying- Anyone who favors intelligent design in lieu of evolution might pause to wonder why God devoted so much of his intelligence to malarial parasites. Yeah, truly. Like, <laughs> if it is intelligent design, then God got a C+. Plus. Yep. <laughs> so... <laughs> yep. Um, if you would like to learn more about Plasmonium and more fascinating parasites, uh, I went back into two really good books. 
Parasite Rex by Carl Zimmer, and uh, the aforementioned Spillover by David Quammen. You can check out both of those uh, and more on our SciPod reading list over at scienceandpictures.com. Good plug! Yeah, we Thank have you. a reading list, y'all. Um, yes, Jared and I, you might be surprised to know uh, our big old nerds who like to read books. So if you want to check out the books that we've read and read some of them, we highly recommend. Yeah, scienceandpictures.com. It's all there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. So that was a uh, substantial substantial jargon corner, but are you ready to use that knowledge to jump into this paper? Yeah, I feel equipped. I know a lot. I know all of the dirty secrets of Plasmodium. That I'm ready to spill the tea. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, let's spill the tea. Ready for you to spill the tea. No. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> so sickle cell anemia is actually one of three hereditary anemias that can offer possible protection against malaria. Um, that one is most common, it's actually most common in, in the U.S. too, but most common in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, now we're going to move over to the Mediterranean, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific, where you will find a very disproportionately high number of people with a hereditary anemia called thalassemia. I've never heard of that one. Thalassemia, with the TH? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, th- uh, it's from the Greek for uh, C, because it was first discovered in the Mediterranean. Uh, emia is a hemoglobin disorder. Aha! Okay, I was wondering, because, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I do, I know words that, you know, relate to the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what's important about thalassemia. Um, much like in sub-Saharan Africa, wherever malaria wreaks, wreaks the most havoc, uh, the genes that cause thalassemia are especially common. In some areas, they're carried by up to 75% of the human population. Wow. Yes. So is thalassemia harmful to the humans in any way? Yes and no. It depends on the variant that you inherit. Okay. Okay. Is it like similar to sickle cell anemia in the, I'm, we don't I, need to get into it. We're actually just about to get into it. Oh, we're about to get into it. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I misinterpreted your facial expression. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Um, so thalassemia, like sickle cell anemia, is a group of genetic disorders that affects the health of red blood cells. So let's talk about hemoglobin. Hemoglobin in adult bodies generally comes in two chains. It's got the alpha chains and it's got the beta chains. Two chains. Makes sense, right? Yep. So thalassemia uh, is what happens when the genes to make those chains are non-functional. In most cases, they uh, result in alpha thalassemia, where you don't make the alpha chains, or beta thalassemia, where you don't make the beta chains. One chain. Mm -hmm. You can also inherit both, um, which can be good or bad. What's up? No chains? Well, balanced form of no chains, which actually does less damage to the body than an unbalanced chains. But... It, that one really depends. We're not going to get into that because that's super complicated. Lil chains? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so um, of these two, the alpha thalassemia and the beta thalassemia, um, the beta thalassemias are much more likely to um, result in complications. And yet, in some parts of Southeast Asia, a mostly harmless beta variant, one of the very few, um, is carried by up to 30 to 50% of the population in those areas. The one that doesn't hurt. Exactly. Um, okay. So that's very against the odds. Um, yeah. The fact that this not that harmful one would be so common. Um, that said, though, the severe symptoms involved with the worst of either disorder can range from iron overload, where iron starts to poison your body, um, uh, uh, bone pathologies, and more. So just like sickle cell anemia, it's extremely unlikely that thalassemia would be inherited so often unless it served an important uh, thing like offering protection from malaria. Yeah, it's got to be an adaptation for it to be that prominent. Exactly. So because malaria and thalassemia are so intertwined, um, scientists have for a long time been interested in the conditions that first led to the appearance of this hereditary anemia. And because, exactly. And because severe thalassemia can cause bone pathologies that are pathognomonic, remember that word? Pathognomonic, very specific, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, for that disease, the skeletons of ancient humans have the potential to reveal that appearance. So we have the potential to figure this out. So that's that's our our indicator, our clue, because the pathognomonics are so specific to this one disorder, then looking at the bones in the archaeological record, that's how we figure it out, the origins. And we have the perfect person to do it, that scientist who who's that's that's her job. Exactly. What's um, her, name? her name is Melandry Block. Love her. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in the Mediterranean, where thalassemia was first reported, uh, the oldest evidence for it lines up pretty well with the Mediterranean human transition to agriculture around 7,000 years ago. 
Um, and that idea does have a lot of merit um, because there are a lot of agricultural practices like land clearing that would put a lot more humans in contact with malaria spreading mosquitoes. For sure. Mm -hmm. um, in Southeast Asia, though, skeletal evidence has been far too rare to find any broad scale patterns. There's one site where it's been found um, oh. at all. Um, until now, actually. But, um, oh, until now. Okay, great. <laughs> yes. Um, so additionally, though, um, and this is what makes it a little confusing, um, agriculture didn't actually spread to Southeast Asia until much later, around 4,500 years ago, compared to 7,000. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So are we, yes, sure? we are sure. Okay. The, so this does raise the question of whether the thalassemia from farming hypothesis actually makes sense in the case of Southeast Asia. Yeah, I was on board, but now I'm puzzled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's go into that puzzle. So to answer this question, uh, the authors of this paper searched for diagnostic evidence of thalassemia in two assemblages of ancient human skeletons located in northern Vietnam. Uh, the older site is called Con Co Nguo. I think that's how you say it. I, I tried to look up the pronunciation. I couldn't find a single person saying it. So if I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry. Um, but I mean, Con we, Co we we, Apparently we have some listeners from Southeast Asia. So if you want to correct us. Oh, that's true. All ears. Yeah. Yes. Please correct me if I need to be corrected. Um, but Konko Nagua is dated to around 6,700 to 6,200 years ago. So in the range of 7,000 years ago. This site contains 155 individuals and very likely served as a burial ground for a sedentary foraging community. So they're not quite like nomadic hunter-gatherers. a sedentary foraging community? <laughs> that sounds great. It does sound great. Um, the important thing, though, is that they're not quite like the nomadic hunter-gatherers that like early humans are so... No, not nomadic. Terry. Exactly. They're not farmers either, but... No. It, it's, it's a unique position they, they, they held. I really like it. They're just like, oh, the things that we need are here. We'll stay here and we'll, we'll just forage, but not too much. Exactly. Um, so the, the newer site uh, called Monbach is dated to around 3,900 to 3,000 years ago. Um, Manbach contains around 70 individuals and was also a likely burial ground. But this time, it's got a mix of sedentary foragers and the migrant farmers that brought agriculture to Southeast Asia. Ah, all right. All Indeed. Right. That's what Manbach catalogs. It catalogs the early interactions between migrant farmers and the native peoples as the farmers migrated and introduced those practices into Southeast Asia. I wonder why they went there. I guess we don't know. This, they talked about the out of Africa hypothesis in this, which is basically just like the outward expansion of humans. So oh, one, yeah. one could say that it was inevitable. Yeah, they get, you know, they're able to, you know, get more food, which means they can have more babies, but then there's not enough space where they are to grow enough food to feed all those babies. So those babies wander and it just keeps happening. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. And the so, babies wander after they grow up. They're not, there's no wandering babies. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes those babies get bitten by an Anopheles mosquito, and then we have uh, here. Um, so before we get into what's found, Madison, why do you think a hemoglobin disorder might present itself in bones? Um, I know that blood is actually made in the, the center of the bone because... Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. in the marrow. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, your very rigid skeleton is not just, not nearly just the rigid support that your squishy organs uh, rest within and your muscles cling to. The tough bony outer sheath masks multiple layers below, uh, one of which you just said houses your bone marrow, where not just blood, red blood cells, but all of the body's blood cells are made, the red ones and the ones for, for your immune system. Yeah, the white blood cells. Yes, really indeed. important. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm gonna, I really like the way this word sounds, so I'm gonna throw some noxious jargon in here. Uh, the stem Wait. cells that make those blood cells are called hematopoietic stem cells. Say it one more time. Hema <laughs> hematopoietic stem cells. Slower. <laughs> hematopoietic stem cells. Hematopoietic stem cells. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, fun jargon. Um, but when a person's bone marrow lacks the ability to make healthy red blood cells, as is the case with anemias, it sometimes tries to solve that problem by expanding um, and ramping up production. Sometimes it expands right out of the tissue layer that it's supposed to stay in. Uh, and, stuff expanding inside your bones? That doesn't sound comfortable. It doesn't. Not at all. Um, and depending on the sufferer's point in their de development, whether they're a child, a teenager, or an adult, that can pretty significantly affect the way that the entire bone grows. Oh no, Bob's. Exactly. Um, so first, we're going to talk about the younger side of Manbach. This is the uh, around 3,000 year ago one. Mm -hmm. So of those people, uh, the bones of six people, one adult and five children aged about 12 months to six years, showed those pathomnemonic signs of thalassemia. 
These include, oh. yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Um, these include rodent faces. Um, where Uh-oh. Hyper- what? rodent faces? It had a it had a rat face. Yes. Um, so this is when hyperactive bone marrow. It basically expands your sinuses in the wrong place. So you have underdeveloped actual sinuses, but you have an expanded lower jaw and face. Oh, that sounds so uncomfortable. It, yeah, it. I, I, I had to look at pictures just to prime myself for this episode, and it does not look fun. Wow, I'm yeah. very sorry to anyone who has that. Seriously, um, they also found something called rib within a rib sign. Uh, this is exactly what you were talking about. It's where the bone marrow expands beyond its normal space on the ribs. Ugh, in the ribs. Oof. Yep. Um, you only see that by a radiograph, but it literally looks like there's a bone within your bone. Ow. Yep. Um, not, yeah. Um, non-pathognomonic, but still suggestive symptoms included those underdeveloped sinuses. Um, there were skull bones that were extra porous because, you know, the marrow is expanding. Um, and bone lesions also caused by that excessive marrow expansion. Ouch. Yes. Okay. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of bad things, but- yes. It protects against the big bad, which is malaria. Yes. And that's also a good point is that these are the people that showed outward symptoms. You can't tell who's a carrier for these thalassemias just by looking at their bones. You just can't because they're not going to show you any symptoms. Yeah, you're right. So like, you know, these are the, these are the extreme cases that are really visible even after thousands of years, but for most, it's not so extreme. Exactly. Are you ready to jump into the older site? Where are we jumping? The older site. Oh, the older site. Yes, I can jump there. <laughs> yes. um, so from the older site of Conconagua, this is the around 7,000 year one, um, bones also suggested the presence of thalassemia, but unlike Manbach, the visible pathologies didn't show a pathognomonic level of certainty. So they weren't totally positive. Um, the bones of seven individuals from this site, all adults and teenagers, they showed bone within a bone signs uh, in their limbs, which is caused by the same kind of marrow expansion, as that rib within a rib, but rib within a rib specifically is is the pathognomonic. That expansion mm-hmm. in other areas of the body does happen with other chronic disorders. Okay, so rib within a rib is like very specific to this one thing that we're trying to study, but bones within bones in other areas, it's not so specific, so we can't really draw as many conclusions. Exactly. Um, okay. If you're curious about what those chronic conditions are, I looked it up and they're called infarction. I don't know how to say that right, and osteopenia. I've learned nothing. um so basically these chronic conditions couldn't be ruled out so Mm -hmm. to solidify our case our case i'm not i didn't write this paper it's us it's It's us (laughs) we're in this (laughs) our authors picked out three individuals at random and evaluated them for telltale microscopic signs of thalassemia little tiny ones indeed so what they did was they took extremely thin slivers of bone uh, from two adults and a teenager, and they sectioned them um, from their donors and put them under a microscope. And with a bit of science, our office had their answer. It's so, a sprinkle of science on top of the microscope. Exactly. And I love this because it was really just simple process of elimination. Um, because those microscopic pathologies of the bones, which includes localized pores created by the bone in some areas of the body being destroyed much faster than it can be remade, that localization has only ever been described in patients of beta thalassemia. Hey, we got another super specific thing to look for. Yes, indeed. Amazing. Yeah. So basically at both sites they looked at, they found thalassemia. Okay. So it's there. It was there. Exactly. During this transition into from the, for, the sedentary foraging culture to more agriculture. So that aligns with their hypothesis, doesn't it? It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, what is what does this tell us? You might be asking. Just because I am asking. <laughs> so let's talk first about the site of Monbach, the the younger oh. of the two sites. So um, the evidence from Monbach pretty strongly suggests that three to four thousand years ago, human evolution was already at work lessening the more lethal effects of thalassemia, and we know this because all but one of the affected individuals showed clinical signs of beta thalassemia in specific, and for that one. A person is very unlikely to sur- survive without the help of blood transfusions and the removal of excess iron fr- from the body, both of which did not exist back then. And yet, four of the seven affected people were older than one year. That survival ratio is quite unexpectedly high um, for zero treatment options being available. Okay, so something. So that shows that you know, as humans were evolving alongside this condition 
they were evolving it, to cope with it better, to live longer with it. Exactly. So, it yeah, was so, sort of adapting. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of that leveling out in uh, lethality. But yeah, so pretty much the only thing. Yeah, like that... finding a way. Exactly. So pretty much the only things that could explain that high sur sur survival rate are the widespread uh, inheritance of that less severe beta thalassemia or the co-inheritance of both. Because when you have the co-inheritance, sometimes it balances out. Okay. I still don't understand how exactly that works, but that's okay. I can accept that it's better. <laughs> think, of, think of it as failing upwards. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, sometimes so two wrongs do make a right. <laughs> exactly. Um <laughs> Whichever of those events happened, such a high level of post-birth survival implies that thalassemia was already, by 3,000 years ago, becoming less dangerous to inherit than it should have been in the beginning. Then it should- okay. And now for Con Con Gua, the smoking gun of our author's case. So, unfortunately for this area, not, known, not enough is known about the microscopic forms of thalassemia to actually say that it was definitely beta thalassemia. It was just thalassemia. But the fact remains that thalassemia in general had evolved at least 6,200 years ago. That's nearly 2,000 years before the Southeast Asian adoption of agriculture. All right. So that's a 2,000-year gap, and it basically strips away any and all credibility from the farming hypothesis that uh, they think happened in the Mediterranean. Yeah, it absolutely happened before. It did. Um, but if it wasn't farming that created the conditions for thalassemia to evolve, what did? Climate change? Possibly. Um, Actually, very, very... <laughs> That's not a way that I thought about um, the, the, the thing that I'm about to say, but yes, you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, or you might be exactly right. We're not... You, you could be. Either way. Good point. Um, There's a possibility I'm right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, at present, this question doesn't yet have a solid answer, especially because nowadays, relatively few cases of malaria are actually reported from the modern humans that live near those sites. So obviously, the things that were causing huge proportions of thalassemia... Um, sorry, malaria aren't really happening in those places anymore. That's good. Yes. Um, but the history of the region of Vietnam, the very deep history, does offer some clues. So beginning after the last ice age, the last glacial maximum around 14,000 years ago, the tropical forests basically had to like reclaim the spots where they were as, as the planet warmed. So tropical forests are a biome that is basically perfect for mosquitoes. It has year-round warm temperatures, and the mosquitoes can multiply very, very, very quickly because there's water. That's why I said climate change, because I was thinking about that mini-sode that we did about <clears throat> the jungle insects um, from like 14,000 years ago. No, 14 million. That was a long time ago, I guess. But um, <laughs> I was just thinking about the fact that when the climate changed in the uh, Miocene era, era, that the the jungles expanded, and I was like, could jungle expansion be the cause of more mosquitoes, be the cause of more malaria? But do we have reason to believe that, like, the jungles were expanding 6,000 years ago? Um, so they've basically been expanding since the, the, um, the, the, the last ice age. So, yeah. Um, awesome. Been, yeah. Um, so since the early peoples of Southeast Asia were those sort of type of sedentary foragers that spent a lot of time in one place, including the fringe areas of forests where mosquitoes are especially common... Mm -hmm. um, this level of contact alone could have been enough for malarial parasites to effectively circulate between the people and mosquitoes of that time. So that, that alone could have been enough to do it. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of <clears throat> evidence in different rainforests around the world that like the original peoples who lived there um, in their foraging habits actually like shaped the rainforests as well. So a lot of interaction between the people and the environment, of course, if they're foraging. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and there's also a lot of modern lines of evidence that Southeast Asian villagers who actively explo exploit neighboring rainforests are unfortunately especially at risk of contracting malaria. Yep. And this is especially because there are known spillovers of the non-human malaria uh, that have been reported in the very same country of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I feel like we would know so much more about this if, well, no, I'm not going to get political. <laughs> All of these possibilities warrant further investigation if the mystery of thalassemia in Southeast Asia is to be completely solved. But uh, let's just do a little sum it all up kind of thing. Um, let's do it. Yeah, there has been a lot of speculation over how thalassemia, a potentially lethal disorder that sometimes offers protection from malarial parasites, was able to evolve in Southeast Asia despite the huge risks involved with inheriting it. Um, a thorough investigation of two new ancient human... Actually, they're not too new, but this is the first time they tested them for thalassemia. Um, <laughs> those sites uh, in Vietnam show that the introduction of agriculture could not have provided the, those necessary conditions like it prob 
I'm not even going to say probably. We just think it did. Like it may have happened in the, in the Mediterranean. Um, just as just as an aside, this sort of thing has also been tried with sickle cell anemia, and that one also doesn't line up with agriculture. Huh? Agriculture, not the cause of things. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Um, it is still not yet possible to say what really happened with any certainty. Only that malaria put so much of a burden on the ancient people of Southeast Asia that a human evolution took an incredibly risky gamble in order to escape that parasitic disease. Yeah, I'm going to go with on this one, like, let's go beyond one-way determinism. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Yeah, there's probably a lot of factors, and, like, the cause of anything, personally, I never think is one thing. Most most definitely not. Especially with with the, the, the messy science that is ecology, it's so complicated. Yeah, no, everything is interwoven. It's not, nothing happens in a linear straight line where it's like, this causes this, causes this, causes this. We would love it to be that way. It would be so much easier to understand, but simply not the case. Um, I'll step off my soapbox now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to step onto that soapbox uh, because I do want to say a quick few things before we wrap up. Um, Now that we've spent all this time talking about thalassemia's roots, I do think it's also important to talk about the disorder's ongoing effects on the modern world. Um, So even before the COVID-19 pandemic, access to treatment for sufferers of thalassemia has been extremely disproportionately available to people living in high-income nations, despite Hmm. the fact that the majority of people with clinical symptoms live in medium and low-income nations. Equity issue... Indeed. Um, As we've just talked about, the large active presence of malaria inside a human population creates ongoing continual pressure to keep thalassemia genes high inside that population. So eradicating malaria is super important too. But eradication efforts for malaria are basically entirely dependent on community-level treatment for affected people, and that is really only permanently available for those high-income nations. It's only sparsely available to where it's really needed. Yeah, the amount of like time and training and resources it takes to become a doctor, we don't think about. We really don't. Very often. Like in order for, you know, humans in any area to be able to to do those things and to, you know, devote their time into a science the way a doctor has to to be an effective doctor, their basic needs need to be met. They Absolutely. need So like we need to be supporting our humans, you know, they're the, they're our brothers and sisters, no matter where they are. We need to be supporting them and helping them have the resources they need to focus on what they want to do. Absolutely, because unfortunately, um, post pandemic or actually not post pandemic at all, um, that gap has only gotten wider. So um, this is recent data in most countries where beta thalassemia exists. Less than 20% of sufferers can actually access timely and effective treatment, like those blood transfusions and the iron doping. Um, As a a result, most of those people, uh, that 80% of people, don't live past the age of 20. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. And so so preventable. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not going to attempt to spin those statistics into something positive, because (laughs) optimism alone is not going to bring about equitable access to treatment for all the people living with thalassemia. Yeah, that would be toxic positivity. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It would be a far, far more effective use of my time to, you know, maybe support an organization that's actively already fighting for that equitable treatment. Who? Who? Who is it? Yeah. So uh, maybe someone like the Thalassemia International Federation. Thalassemia International Federation. TIF? Yes. uh, The TIF is an NGO that I actually pulled a good amount of info from this episode from, um, but they are an internationally... uh, recognized and officially partnered uh, with the World Health Organization. Um, It was actually founded by a large network of doctors and people living with that disorder. So it was founded by the people. We got perspective from the people who actually are suffering from it. That's amazing. We need that. Yes. Exactly. Um, I'm sure you can guess what their primary goal is. Um, Their primary goal is to ensure equitable access to treatment, not just for thalassemia, but every hemoglobin disorder across the globe. Yes. So listeners, if you are one of the millions of people uh, living with thalassemia or want to do what you can to help those who are, uh, you can actually learn a lot uh, and support uh, the Thalassemia International Federation through the link I will be providing in this episode's show notes. It's going to be in the show notes and the Instagram. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's awesome. Happy to know that there's already an organization that's working on this because, you know, like just one person caring about something, you know, it's really hard to make a difference, but Absolutely. 
the best way to make a difference in something you care about is to join a group of people that's already working on it because you need all of those different perspectives and skill sets in order to really make something happen. No one is expected to do anything alone. Get get shake off that individualism, yeah. American listeners. Talking about that community level action. Heck yeah. So yeah, that's all I got. All right. That was awesome. I learned a lot. That was complex, but you did a great job breaking it down. I feel like I actually understand. I'm sure you can understand why the Dark Order was half the episode now. It was, yeah, but it was <laughs> needed to be. It, it was needed to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. I mean, absolutely check out the TIFF, the T-I-F. The T-I-F. Um, and uh, for those of you who are still listening, um, if you want to also check out the TIF, just make sure you check out our social media. Um, I mean, you can Google it yourself if you want, but we will be posting it on our social media. So once again, you can follow us at science underscore in underscore podcast on Instagram, science in podcast on Facebook. You can email us. Um, We'd be happy to hear from you. And um, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank you guys. And uh, goodbye. Bye.